Over 20,000 people live in Cologne in the 12th century, if not more. No Episcopal city in the Holy Roman Empire had more inhabitants at that time. Let's take a look at the society of that time, right after the intro. Hello and welcome back to the History of Cologne, a podcast about the city of Cologne, today's Western Germany, that is over 2000 years old. But until it became what it is today, this old city on the Rhine has endured a colorful and rich past, hence it can therefore be seen as quite a European microcosm. In this podcast you can listen as the city grows, from the Romans up until our present time. As far as possible, we look at the normal people in Cologne. So no bishops, kings or emperors. Who were these people? Where does the flower in Cologne come from? The Cologne penny is a kind of mini-euro, so a little mini-European currency. While we're on the subject of money, let's take a look at the life of the richest citizen of Cologne in the second half of the 12th century. And since life should always be taken with a sense of humor, the crowning touch. The rich citizens of Cologne give themselves funny nicknames, which we'll take a closer look at. The term city air makes you free is familiar to many in the German language. I have no idea actually if that's a metaphor in or saying in English as well. Maybe you can tell me that. Many think of the city in the Middle Ages as a place that was the better lot, in contrast to the situation of the rural population in the countryside who supposedly suffered under the yoke of the respective feudal lord and landowner. But this is a one-sided and sometimes glorified view of the cities in the Middle Ages. Urban society was also characterized by great social differences that were just as profound as in the countryside. At the top of the city population we have the freemen. They are often merchants in long-distance trade, wealthy craftsmen, or large landowners and moneylenders, or many of the licit things at the same time. Nobles did not live in Cologne at this time. They preferred their castles or country estates in the countryside. Later, the nobility from all over the region, sometimes even from Europe, were to maintain houses in the city so that they always had a place to stay when they visited the city. But here in the 12th century, however, this is still a thing of the future. The free people of the city made up only a fraction of the city society. The overwhelming majority were unfree in some kind of way. Unlike in the countryside, most city dwellers could hardly afford to pay their respective lord grain taxes or such. So in the meantime, there was an increasing tendency to pay a fixed amount of money each year. Around 1100, two pennies per head were common. Two pennies! There was some kind of money, but not too much money for a regular person. Otherwise, such sensuals were free to organize their everyday life. The Lord no longer told them who they could marry or what they should do for work, nor did the Lord require them to work regularly in the fields or on certain days of the week, as um, the Lords had done in the past, in the early Middle Ages. Many monasteries and convents were sometimes also Lords of sensuals and bondsmen. Often they were once transferred by nobles or Lords together with a donation to the respective monastery. I like to emphasize it here again, the bonded people were not slaves. 
they were just from then on tributary to this monastery then, but they were not without rights. On the contrary, it was a, it's a hard word in English, it was a reciprocal relationship that was considered positive by both sides. If a poor little craftsman wanted to get his rights after being wronged in his eyes, he turned to his lord. From then on, he was responsible for claiming the right of his subject. Of course, without universal law, this did not always work completely, but in theory, it was. Being a subject in that time was nevertheless an improvement, because the serfs of the Middle Ages were no longer objects in the eyes of the people of that time, like the slaves of ancient Rome, who could be killed, raped, otherwise physically and psychologically tortured, or sold to the other corner of the world. All this was no longer possible. Other lords, for example the bishops, even partially turned the whole thing around. They transferred their own privileges, as far as the exercise of rights, revenues and possessions were concerned, to parts of their subjects. In this way, these bondsmen, serfs, half-free or unfree men, how you want to call them, were given a significant share of the profits that came with those tasks. This is how the sometimes rich class of the aforementioned ministerials came into being. The cliché of a medieval town where someone callously empties a bucket of garbage onto the street from the upper floor does not correspond to reality. Just imagine, what if a simple servant or maid did this and they hid a ministerial, so one of the numerous servants of the archbishop walking in the street, then you would be really in big trouble. Then rather take the bucket and dispose of the contents in a nearby latrine or ditch. Women who fell into poverty fell especially quickly down the social hierarchy. We know from Archbishop Anno, a big friend of this show, we gave him four episodes, that he was really committed to freeing women from prostitution because many women got into prostitution because they were simply poor. We've heard a lot of bad things about Anno here, but it was probably really the kind of piety that Anno, who came from lower landed nobility, was pursuing here. For example, there is a story that Anno found an abandoned infant and that was probably left on the street by a desperate woman while walking through the city. Anno took care of the infant and had it baptized. As a baptismal name, the infant received the name of the archbishop and was placed in secure care. And sometimes he would walk around at night trying to find prostitutes and their customers, so to speak. He would punish the customers and give the prostitutes a chance to live a more pious life somewhere else. If that's all true, hey, how can we know that? The historical sources say it, but if it's true, that's uh, another thing to debate in another place. The fight against prostitution is as old as prostitution itself. At the beginning of the 13th century, for example, a monastery was founded in Cologne, the White Women's Convent. After a maximum of 20 years, the convent was closed again due to lack of success. But there are also good things to report. Unfree women can now also inherit and are no longer subject to any marriage restrictions. In the case of property acquisitions, wives were always listed as buyers on an equal footing with the husbands. 
but this also meant that the wife had to take over the debts if the husband died before her or even went on the run. Of course, however, we are a long way from today's achievements here. De facto, it still applies. The closest possible male relative is the guardian of every woman. Women found themselves in a narrow legal space that was not entirely secure. But here too, in contrast to the Roman period, there are free spaces that women could at least explore. We will come to one of those personalities in a moment. The big difference from today is that the rich and powerful continue to live among the so-called ordinary people. Even those who lived in a palace immediately re-entered everyday life as soon as they left it and stepped onto the street. Quite different from today with private jets, own private islands or gated communities which are entire cordoned off neighborhoods or even whole towns. The ministerials were again the social climbers of the time in the period around 1100. Social mobility was possible, though not for everyone. As unfree men, men could gain wealth and influence as servants of the archbishop, as fighters and administrators. For the numerous properties in Cologne as well as in the entire archbishopric of Cologne, the archbishop needed help to administrate that. After all, he could not be everywhere in person and keep an eye on the day-to-day -day business. These ministerials were naturally recruited in Cologne from the Cologne population, which was in bondage to the archbishop. However, with the increasing wealth and influence, the ministerial staff becomes more and more drumroll, wealthier and influential. This leads to the development of their own awareness of being able to represent the city and its people themselves. The development of the Richardseche, the Brotherhood of the Rich, which we had some episodes before talked about, shows this clearly. Many ministerials were member of the Brotherhood of the Rich, for they also fought for more and more rights. So it was enforced from 1170 that the family of the ministerial was not in this unfree state, only the man, the ministerial, himself. If the ministerial became rich, he could bequeath all this to his sons and daughters, without them being in bondage anymore. Furthermore, ministerials were allowed to enter into service relationships with other lords as well, and even to freely command property that they had acquired themselves. Cologne had a lot of immigrants at that time. Like so many medieval cities, Cologne attracted its inhabitants from the surrounding countryside. The sad thing, as so often, the sources are almost completely silent about the non-rich people. Only the upper classes often give us clues about areas from which people immigrated to Cologne. Especially, guessed right, the shrine books bring some light into darkness here. Thus, the rich people who came to Cologne came mainly from the regions along the entire Rhine, whether the North Sea, the Netherlands, or even today Switzerland. That French people also settled in Cologne is shown by the year 1163, when the Cathars, who were considered heretics at the time and who had their followers in France, were arrested. These Cologne French Cathars ended up at the stake. The Cathars are a really exciting subject, but for this time they don't quite fit into our narrative. Maybe another time, sorry, dear Cathars. Social inequality in Cologne was enormous, as in all cities. Day laborers had to look every day where they found their work, 
whether in the port, unloading goods, or as suppliers within the city. A day without work meant a day without income, but at least they were able to try to get some money or food. Beggars, orphans, widows from poor backgrounds, the homeless and the sick were at the bottom. They had to rely on charitable gifts from their better-off neighbors or the care of the numerous religious institutions in the city. However, the people at the bottom of the city's society were not without rights. What we have in Cologne 12th century is really something like an existing small middle class. The small craftsmen, local merchants or tradesmen. A class that always and ceaselessly had to work hard. They could not indulge in city politics like the members of the Richardseche, but they had a house along with a store in one building combined and owned enough property to have full citizenship rights as evidenced by the shrine books from that time. Yes, I know citizenship in medieval times is still a hot topic, which I have not yet addressed due to the lack of knowledge. While the members of the Richardseche often owned several houses, land and so on, even the wealthy moneylenders often had no more than their own house. Only the goldsmiths sometimes had more than two houses in their possessions, which they rented or leased. I do not want to talk further about the professions in the city for now. That would be worth a separate topic, and I will do a separate topic about that, a, sep a separate episode, I mean. It would go beyond the scope here, but I will make two small exceptions directly after a short break. Agriculture was everywhere in the walled city, which seems rather strange when you think of a densely urban area. And even though people didn't always eat plump grain porridge, grain products were of course an important part of the diet, just as they are today. Since there was hardly any room for it in the city, let alone enough wind or water, the city's mills were located on the Rhine River. Yes, that's right, mills were anchored in the middle of the Rhine on boats. For this purpose, piles were driven into the Rhine and the Rhine mills were chained to them. The current moved the corresponding water wheels continuously and transferred the power to the millstones which processed the grain into flour in wooden sheds next to them. You can't really picture that right now? Don't worry, I will post some pictures on my homepage thehistoryofcologne.com and um, the coming days on social media. Because thanks to Mr. Anton Wunsam's city view, we have an accurate drawing of them. By the way, the best documented drawing of this kind. Working on the Rhine mill was not without its dangers. One was always exposed to the current and a largely fixed object in the river, also in danger of being rammed by ships coming or passing by. These Rhine mills shaped the face of the city for a long time and they were also hotly contested. Rich citizens or the archbishop constantly fought over this lucrative source of income. They were first documented under Archbishop Bruno in the middle of the 10th century, also a big friend of the show. Unfortunately, we know nothing about their performance, so meaning how much grain they milled a day or a year, and their number also fluctuated. Around 1200 AD, there were more than 30 of them in the Rhine. At the beginning of the 19th century, there were only two left. Shortly thereafter, these two relics of a 900-year history of operation 
also disappeared when the first industrial mills went into operation in Cologne. Economically, the period was also marked by an upswing. The Cologne penny was of course not the only currency minted in the empire. The rulers of the Holy Roman Empire had transferred the right to mint coins, especially to bishops, in more recent times. This ensured that one had to look in the most diverse places in the empire where and with which coin you could pay. Because of course the local rulers were eager to ensure that only the local currency was used for payment. Money exchange offices earned a fortune from the fees they charged, just like these exchange offices at airports and train stations. Nevertheless, an interesting development had now already been completed in the 12th century, which I had already addressed in an earlier episode. In particular, the coins of the prospering bishops' towns established themselves as the leading currency beyond the region, a local euro quasi across sovereign borders. The Cologne penny knew how to displace other regional currencies through its economic power. Thiel, a town in what is now the Netherlands, used the Cologne penny, as did Andernach in the southern Rhineland or Fritzlar in Hesse, a large area then that no other coin in the empire surpassed at that time. The prosperity of the rich citizens of Cologne ensured that they visibly emulated now the nobility, or presented themselves like knights even. Later they would give themselves coat of arms, without necessarily becoming or being nobles themselves. This finds expression in 1178, when several citizens found a monastery, very close to the already existing monastery of St. Ursula. They, the citizens, founded a new female Benedictine monastery, the Maccabee Monastery. Why they built a new monastery right here in close proximity to St. Ursula? We'll get to that another time, I promise you that, but small spoiler, it has something to do with bones found in the nearby earth. That sounds totally normal now, yes, well, then they founded a monastery together, everyone threw some money into the middle of, and uh, off they went. But consider who had founded monasteries by then, up until now. Emperors, kings, bishops, maybe abbots and some local nobles, okay and the high clergy. But the fact that now citizens in Cologne, normal people so to speak, rich but normal, now also did this was a clear sign of growing prosperity, political self-empowerment and a growing awareness of their own status as rich citizens, both towards the city ruler and towards the neighbors in their own city that not had so much money. The city's own bourgeois elites continued to grow. As you know, the historical sources do not provide precise statistics or lists. Rather, we have to make use of individual biographies or information from the shrine books. The Scrooge McDuck of that time within the Cologne population was a certain Gerhard Unmarze. Now, the German language has always evolved over the centuries, then as now. Thus it comes that one finds at first nothing strange at the name Unmarze, even as someone with German as native language, like me. In those days, however, Unmarze, and I'm not even really sure if I pronounce that word right, because I never heard of it before, 
unmaße meant something like the intemperate or the immodest. So actually a not at all flattering attribution for a respective and wealthy man. In Cologne, however, people had a sense of humor even back then and looked at many things with a twinkle in their eyes, but we will come to that later. Gerhard Unmatze came from that very class of ministerials, the circle of servants of the Archbishop of Cologne. His biography shows how it was possible to go from being an unfree servant to the richest inhabitant of Cologne of his time. Just for reference, the sure name Unmatze is not a sure name at all, but only a byname. Sure names were hardly common in Europe at that time. Especially in Venice they had them at that time already, I think, but not yet in Cologne. And the great thing about a byname, you can change it or vary it. At the beginning of his career, he called himself Gerhard from Hof. This, of course, from Hof, so from the palace, meant the palace court of the archbishop, to which Gerhard as a ministerial naturally felt closely connected to. Since this was also connected with prestige and power, Gerhard carried this epithet with pride until he later gave himself the other epithet, the immodest, the unmatze. Gerhard came from a family that already had great wealth and prosperity in the city. His father of the same name had also already served as a ministerial. Born around the middle of the 12th century, he thus had ideal starting opportunities, in particular documents and the shrine books of St. Lawrence, the ward where he later lived, give us much information about Gerhard's further life. In 1169, he got the lucrative post of the archbishop's tax collector. Consider this. Receiving customs revenues had once been a royal right, one that Emperor Otto I had permanently conferred on his younger brother, the Cologne Archbishop Bruno in 10th century. And now, Gerhard Unmatze, a ministerial in the service of the archbishop, exercised this office. Now this gave him additional power and influence. He was included in the Collegiate of the Magistrates and within the Richardseche, he naturally also acted as mayor. This kind of accumulation of offices is typical for the later bourgeois upper class of Cologne. Gerhard belonged as a magistrate to the high court of the archbishop as well as to the Richardseche and was also bailiff of some monasteries in the region, which meant that he could also book income from there. One could say that he was an expression of the medieval Cologne nepotism that Cologne is famous for, the Kölsche Klüngel how we call it in Cologne dialect. Gerhard became incredibly rich with it. He was the Scrooge MacDuck of his time. So rich, in fact, that he, Gerhard, lent Archbishop Philip of Heinsberg 650 marks in 1174. That is the equivalent of about 152 kilograms of pure silver, or for your American listeners, something above 300 pounds of silver. And to be sure, Gerhard lent this sum to the powerful Archbishop of Cologne, not vice versa. The Archbishop was in dire need of money at that time as he had seized the Duchy of Westphalia for the Cologne Church as a secular territory to rule and needed some funds to secure his rule and expand his territory there, giving like gifts to local nobles and building castles. You can see his tomb of Philip of Heinsberg 
in Cologne Cathedral to this day. And his sarcophagus is also itself a mini castle. No joke, really look at it. If the richest inhabitant of the city could negotiate with the city ruler at eye level, what could the entire population achieve politically? Of course, the Richard Sech in particular always had this in mind. Gerhard Unmarze was thus ridiculously rich and powerful. His brother Dietrich was to imitate his brother in almost everything as well, becoming a minor bailiff, mayor of the Richard Zeche, and becoming a magistrate as well. For this, Gerhard Unmarze stands perfectly for this development, becoming powerful and rich inhabitants from being a ministerial, these unfree servants of the archbishop. Many of them would later represent the upper class of the Cologne citizenry, first economically, then also politically. You can still visit the location of Gerhard Unmarz's house today. Gerhard lived in the ward of St. Lawrence's, already told. That district, south of the Cologne Cathedral, which also administered the shrine books for the Jewish quarter as well. However, his address, Am Hof 2222, does not present a nice sight at present here in the year 2023. Unmarz's house has not stood here for a long time, of course, it has long been demolished already. Until 2022, a post-war building stood here, and it was not in good shape anymore. And it was perceived as an eyesore due to the vacancy of the store on the first floor, for example, that used to have a steakhouse in there for tourists uh, coming by after visiting Cologne Cathedral or the Old Town. As I said, it was not a nice-looking building, like many of the buildings that were quickly built here after the Second World War. So they tore down not only this single building, but the whole street. So at the moment you will find a huge construction gap and the construction site itself there. Gerhard Unmarze represents a new type in his era. Of course he continued to trade in goods. Often the income of a minister was paid in goods instead of money, with which then the respective ministerial may trade independently. But the period of the 12th century also shows that the money economy had clearly gained momentum. Many more coins were in circulation and in use, thus Gerhard traded not only in goods, but also in money itself, which after all the loan of the archbishop proved. Thus, Gerhard is someone who does something that appears in this period in Europe in all places where intensive trade is carried out. He is one of the first bankers of his time, even if that was something quite different at that time than it is today. Gerhard did not give loans with interest, which was actually forbidden, although there were many loopholes for it. Rather, he had his debtors give him collateral that he could seize in an emergency if the debtor could not pay anymore. In this way, Gerhard got hold of a lot of land in Cologne and buildings in particular as he took possession of the houses of his defaulting debtors. A true Scrooge McDuck, as I said. There was hardly a farm in or outside the city, for example, that didn't somehow belong to him or where he had his fingers uh, in it. Gerhard died without children of his own in 1198. Almost everything, except the house Amhof 2222, was inherited by the widow Richmut, Gerhard's adopted daughter. 
she founded the monastery Vaya in the west of the town in front of the city walls and took her four young daughters with her. After her death, she bequeathed the entire property and wealth that she inherited to this monastery. Of course, Gerhard Unmarze is immortalized as a figure on the historic town hall tower today. He is depicted as a merchant with sewn-in scales as a pattern on his coat. In his hand, he holds a box full of money bags. At his feet is a warehouse with numerous rolled-up documents, a sign that he owned a lot of property. Almost everything we know about him, in fact, we know from business documents of that time. First of all, I would like to briefly mention here that I find it a pity that one hardly ever encounters women in the historical tradition. The next candidate I present here is also a man, but as a third example, I am pleased that a prominent woman from the upper class of the city of Cologne will be mentioned here as well. If Gerhard Unmarze was already considered part of the upper class because of his father, the life story of Arnold Kuscheren, I have no idea if that's the correct way to pronounce his old German name, is that of a true social climber. In his younger years, Arnold probably grew up in the service and dependence of the Pinkstorf farm near Brühl, a town west of Cologne today. In the settlement of Pinkstorf, they were specialized in the production of ceramics. Short throwback. Do you remember the very first episode of this podcast? About Cologne in the Stone Age? There I mentioned the so-called Bandkeramika or linear pottery culture, who also used the clay deposits located here for the pottery around 6000 BC. 7000 years later, so in the 12th century, pottery is also produced here. The pottery from Pinkstorf production in the High Middle Ages was then brought to Cologne, loaded onto ships, and sold as far as England and Scandinavia. A probably lucrative business which made the unfree mentioned Arnold here very rich. So rich that he was given his freedom around 1170 by Archbishop Philip of Heinsberg, yes, there is the good guy again, who was probably the lord of the manor here. Surely Arnold had motivated the chief shepherd of the Cologne church a bit with a few coins that he made over the last years. But this cleared the way for Arnold to make a career in the Richardseche and all the other institutions of the rich and wealthy and powerful. What probably also happened. As I said, social mobility was possible, even if not equally for everyone. But now we finally come to a woman named Zela Jude. Yes, I know, if you know a little German, you will stumble at the epithet or the byname of Jude. It is the German word for Jew. Zela breaks out somewhat from the chronology here, since she is born only around 1180, but we illuminate here so far the 12th century only. Sorry, but I wanted to put her into this episode. But also the first traces of the Jude family into which Zela married can be found right here in the middle of the 1100s. Werner Jude, like Gerhard Unmarze later, was an archiepiscopal tax collector and had thus established the rise of his family in the middle of the 12th century. They owed the name Jude not 
to any religious affiliation, but to the fact that the ancestral home of the clan in the city was called House zum Juden, so House to the Jew. The Jude family were therefore Christians. To the topic of the by-names in that time, we come again separately soon. The Jude family would have a decisive influence on the town until well into the 17th century. Countless magistrates emerged from it. Likewise, mayors and first for the Richardsech and then later for the council of the city of Cologne, which, however, did not exist here in the 12th century. There was not a city council yet. Zela, as mentioned, was born around 1180 and married Daniel Jude, thus marrying into this important family. She is an example of how even wealthy women could have some leeway in otherwise strictly patriarchal society, more so even than patrician women in Roman times. Based on the shrine books, we know that in 1227, after the death of her husband, she bought a house as a widow in what is now Stolkgasse Street. This is not far from the northern Roman city wall and from St. Ursula. Nowadays, there is a big building in Stolkgasse, which dominates the whole alley. This houses both a police station and the editorial offices of the newspaper Kölnische Rundschau. Zela is extremely important for the spiritual life of Cologne. She founded one of the first Begin convents in Cologne in 1230 in the very building in Stolkgasse that she had bought. Begins are a topic of their own. Fun fact, I once heard a detailed lecture on the Begins by Dr. Lita Böhringer at an online conference of the Friends of History in Cologne, or, or in German, Geschichte in Köln. Therefore, I know too well that this has to be discussed adequately and in detail some other time. Therefore, here only the absolute short form. Women have only two choices until far into modern times. First, to enter into a marriage, always being afraid to get into danger with their numerous pregnancies, or to be at the mercy of a sometimes bad husband. Or, second, to enter a convent to join a monastery. But was that really a possible option for all women at the time? In the three large women's monasteries around 1100, almost only noble women were admitted. That's a pity if one does not belong to this elite little circle, like most of the women of Cologne. But what if you didn't want either? No marriage and no convent life. Perhaps one could look for some kind of middle ground? Begins are unmarried women who lived in a community with their peers in an apartment in the middle of the city and devoted themselves to a simple, modest life, however, pious marriage-less everyday life. But this, as I said, not behind closed convent doors in the countryside, but in the midst of everyday urban life. At home they pray, they work, and outside they do charitable acts within the neighborhood. As I said, we will have to shed appropriate light on this another time. However, the Begins represented a new form of spiritual life from 1200 onwards, and Cologne in particular, was to experience a real boom in Begin communities. At times, there were more women living in Begin communities in Cologne, indeed in all of Christian Europe, than there were women in traditional convents. It was a decentralized and yet almost simultaneous spiritual movement around the year 1200. 
Zela Jude mentioned here was someone who was instrumental in promoting this. She is depicted as a figure on the historic town hall tower as well and has a small Begin figure at her feet, including a house of the Begins. Let's also come to the subject of epithets, or bynames, on which we will be happy to list other shorter biographies from that time. From the middle of the 12th century, the numerous names of the rich inhabitants of Cologne appear for the first time as if from nowhere. This is of course no coincidence, but has to do with the transmission and availability of historical written sources. The already much mentioned shrine books are to be mentioned here. When the people in their districts began to write about themselves, to record legal transactions, not only orally with witnesses present, but also in writing, we get light into the hitherto dark. Written on long-lasting sheets of parchment, which have been preserved to this day, it is only now that historians have a chance to even grasp this time around 900 years ago. Here so many names of the later important Cologne patrician families, so the rich citizens of Cologne, around 1150 then appear. But this does not mean that later in the 13th century new ones should not be added. Cologne was an immigration city throughout the Middle Ages. We learn from the shrine books, for example, about a man named Ludwig von Mommersloch, who is mentioned as a witness in a document of Archbishop Reinhard von Dassel in 1166. As a ministerial, he goes through a career up to the upper class of the city. His descendants will skillfully hold offices and posts in the various institutions of the city. Thus, at the end of the 13th century, Gottfried von Mommersloch would be one of the richest Cologne citizens. Not far away from the cathedral, but already Niederich, so the former northern suburb of medieval Cologne, today's Marzellenstraße Street, Gerhard Schärfkin lived in 1163. His descendants of the same name were to be one of the most determined opponents of the archbishop about 100 years later, when the Cologne patricians rebelled militarily against the archbishop's rule of the city. In 1170, Dietrich von der Mühlengasse bought a farm near today's Hahnenstraße Street, close to Rudolfplatz Square, which of course did not exist at that time. He also owed a warehouse at the Buttermarkt, butter market, in the Martins Quarter, located between the harbor and the old market. The patrician line of the Weisen also sprang from this line. A descendant of the same name, Dietrich Weise, was to become so powerful that around 1230 AD he virtually controlled the whole collegiate of magistrates with his members of his clan within this institution. The German name Weise comes from the fact that Dietrich could speak fluent French and Latin, thus he was considered very wise and knowledgeable for the time for the people of his time. These by-names, we had already briefly gone into the subject with Gerhard Unmatz, were not sure names, but by-names, that the later patricians or the wealthy citizens of Cologne gave themselves. For a long time in Cologne, as in many parts of the European Middle Ages, no by-names were used. The villagers and the people living in them had been too manageable for that. The world was small in the eyes of the contemporaries at that time still, and people knew each other. They may have been Peter the blacksmith, or 
Maria, the fruit seller, or Richmodes, the abbess. The only problem now was, in a town that now had over 20,000 inhabitants, there was a good chance that there might also be a second or even a third Peter who was a blacksmith, or five Gerhards who were merchants as well. So people gave themselves by names. With some names, we do not know the background. With families like those of the Jude, we know that they refer to their home, their house, or place names. Or the family von der Mühlengasse, which in English just means from the Miller's Alley, for example, or Mommersloch, the Mommers Hole. Some, however, had a certain sense of humor in their choice of byname. Let's come back to Gerd Unmatze. Unmatze, that means the excessive one, the immodest. Not a nice character description, especially in such a time where honor was so important. Here Gerhard turned the knightly ideal of moderation into the mocking opposite. The intemperate, the immodest, was thus not related to his wealth, but his character. Above all, the name was not meant too seriously. It was meant to be a funny joke, part of the personal branding, as one would say today. This means one thing above all. Whoever was so rich and powerful did not have to fear that such a name would discredit them. Or to put it another way, one could simply afford to be called that. Regardless of the by name, people still had a huge amount of respect and maybe a little bit of fear for a Gerhard Unmatze person. Further examples support this. Around 1170, we learn of a man named Everhard who lived in the former northern suburb of Niederich, in today's Maccabeastrasse, where also the monastery mentioned here at the beginning was located. He and his descendants later called themselves Kleingedank, so small thinking in English translated. So someone with small or weak mind, so calling themselves stupid, well, they could afford it. Good with punches, and not only with punchlines, so words alone, or blessed with a strong fist, was probably around the year 1140 a man named Albero, who gave himself the byname Hardofust for himself and his descendants. Hardofust meaning the hard fist. Bam! His son of the same name married a daughter from the family of the Jude family and lived in a corner house near the Rheingasse street, very close to St. Mary in the capital, in Oversburg, the former southern suburb, which had been incorporated into the city with ramparts and uh, a wall in 1106. His younger brother, Gottfried, lived at the other end of the alley. The Hardefaust, the strong fists, the hard fists, would also play an important role in the next hundred years in Cologne's history. The most famous Cologne patrician family, because probably also the most successful, were the Overstolzens, the overproud, the arrogant ones. In Latin they were called Superbus, just like the seventh and last king of Rome, Tarquinius Superbus. Also the Overstolzens had decided for a nevertheless eye-twinkling name, Compared to other families mentioned here, the Overstolzens were, if you look at the later power of the family they had in the 13th century, they were, yeah, they were late starters, late bloomers, if that's a term also in English, I have no idea. It's a metaphor in German. Around 1200, 
the founder of this dynasty, Gottschalk Overstolz, had still worked as a salesman himself in his textile store in the street Unter Hutmacher, which translated in English means among the, the hat makers. Throughout his life, however, Gottschalk was denied access to the elite circles of the city society, whether as a ministerial, as a witness to archiepiscopal documents, or even as a member of the Richardseche. But Gottschalk Overstolz probably did well, because when Gottschalk died around the year 1205, he was rich, rich in money, property, and children. Nine in number became adults, which he had married well into higher classes. A meteoric rise of the Overstolzen family began from 1230. The Overstolzens were represented everywhere in the city, in the committees of the city government. From then on, they would vehemently... But stop. No, no, no. I will not say anything further. That would be looking too much into the future, and we don't want to spoil anything. We also learn from this time about a man called Ludolf Grin. Grin, and in English it has the same meaning. It's the grimacing one, the grinning one, who was a magistrate in 1149. His descendants were to do a lot of things, the Grin family members, but um, no, I will not talk about them either because I don't want to spoil anyone. I don't think it would be helpful to make any more enumerations now of family names. We still have far too many families left for that, like the Arducht, the Gier family, which means the greedy ones, the family of Hirz, Hirzelin, Vom Horn, Lüskirchen, Quattermark, Schärfkin, Spiegel, Fuhlei, which means rotten egg, by the way, or Fettschulder, meaning greasy shoulder. All important families, which we will then deal with at the appropriate place and time. Okay, uh, those were the names of the rich and powerful of Cologne. What was then with the normal people, the ordinary people? Here, in fact, can also be found epithets or bynames, because, as I said, this had become necessary in a city that had clearly exceeded the 20,000 inhabitant mark. So many who were called Gerhard, Richmodus, or Matthew. In the choice of epithets for the rest of the normal population, however, people remained modest and above all pragmatic. Did one have blonde hair? Then one gave oneself the epithet Albus, or the blonde one. Or one called oneself after the profession, like Miller or Blacksmith. I am pretty sure that someone here is listening who has the sure name of Miller or Müller in German. And now you know where it came from. Or one named oneself after the place from which one had immigrated, like Suevus, if you came from uh, Swabia in southern Germany. Or the place where one lived at present, either the corresponding street, if it had a name already, or the adjacent parish church. So, for example, I am Matthew from Saint, of St. Gerion, or something like that. Let's take a last small break. This was a variety of topics this time, but at its core, it was about the people in the city. I really hope that you enjoyed it. Next time, I would like to talk about something that you can clearly see today in Cologne. The silhouette 
of the city of Cologne with its Romanesque church buildings. The beginning of the church building boom, which was to last exactly 100 years, or let's say around 100 years. The beginning had a sad cause. A great fire devastates the city in 1150. A great fire devastates the city in 1150. Large parts of the city become victims of the flames. In the densely built-up Martin's Quarter at the city harbour, the eponymous monastery church of Grain St. Martin collapses. So they decide to build a new church here, in the Romanesque style. And then they do it everywhere in the city, in, their, in those hundred years alone. What actually makes the Romanesque style so special and fascinating as a hinge between old and new, you'll find out in the next episode. And believe me, the Romanesque style is more than just boring talks about architecture. Believe me, it has a whole set of thinking behind it. As always, Cologne, the High Middle Ages by Hugo Stehkamp and Karl Dietmar helped me as literature this time. Manfred Groten's uh, The German City in the Middle Ages, the title is of course in German, was also of great help, really. It, it's a great book, it's such a good read, it's so well written. Really, it's one of the best books about this topic I've ever read, especially concerning the epithets of the patrician families. With the many biographies in this series, the Cologne Dictionary of Persons was also an indispensable support. At the end of each episode, I have to say thank you. Thanks for listening, for your lifetime, really, it means so much to me. Thanks to my Patreons, who reliably finance this podcast and thus make long-term planning possible, which unfortunately costs money. Thanks also to those who left me something in the hat via PayPal as a tip. Thanks this week to Lisa, Johannes, Ulrich, Thomas and Sylvia. So again, thank you so much for taking the time to listen again. If you enjoyed the episode, let's join forces to form the Cologne Triumvirate of the podcast world. Subscribe, rate and share the podcast so that even more history lovers can experience a journey through the centuries. Together, let's uncover the secrets of Cologne and bring this fascinating city history to life for everyone. So, see you soon, and as always, Auf Wiedersehen.